Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations and a full extrasode from Season 3, Episode 16, our discussion on what data modeling can tell us about drug and diagnostic development in patient treatment. The extrasode is on MRE and hepatogram and their place in clinical treatment of patients today. This conversation picks up on some issues that arose at the recent Liver Connect conference or in recent podcasts. The relative value of BMI versus waist circumference versus other fat store measures in predicting NASH outcomes. Cumulative impact of alcohol or drug abuse on the increasing prevalence of NASH and likely outcomes, the value of simply stabilizing fibrosis versus regressing it, and finally, how to think about fast progressors. The last conversation is particularly interesting with the clinical researchers questioning whether a fast progressor is in fact that or simply a patient who is diagnosed late. While I suggest that in terms of the cost modeling, the fast progressor is the most economically attractive target for treatment and someone to be looked at for that reason alone. Epidemiology and disease modeling have much to teach us about the impact of NAFL and NASH today, how that impact will change over time, and where we all should focus our efforts. These lessons are vitally important. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. One of the conversations at CLDF was about the idea that um, waist circumference might be a better way to look at some of this than BMI. And I'm wondering if you've got existing data that compares or contrasts the two and gives a sense of the relative value of one versus the other as a uh, measure of metabolic exposure. Chris Estes. So I have looked at waist circumference data. I haven't looked at that recently, but we do expect also there to be a difference between countries. So in a country like China or Japan, you'd have a greater portion of the people that are classified as normal weight with possibly a risky waist circumference versus you know a country like Fiji or something. It is going to vary between countries, but waist circumference is probably a good measure. The data are less readily available on a longitudinal basis. So you know, with obesity, we do have those annual data going back decades, and you know the waist circumference data is a little bit less readily available. But comparing the two, you know, waist circumference versus BMI, I think is a useful marker for disease. Jörn Schattenberg. Agree. And maybe just to follow up, it's not as standardized. You know, the waist circumference, if you have the untrained personal, you can get a little bit between somewhere between the hips and the belly, and then you get variations. I think the big numbers might cut this out again, but I agree the BMI is just more standardized. But I think from the cardiovascular risk literature, we know very well where that places. Alina Allen. I think that's interesting in terms of modeling and using other parameters other than obesity. Back to what you said earlier, Chris, that obesity rates started to increase again now after the pandemic and coupling this information with the several papers we have seen recently with the increased amount of alcohol use in several populations. And we've seen this in Europe and in the United States as well. I wonder if going forward, we will try to predict the burden of fatty liver disease by combining these two curves, right, of obesity increase and alcohol use increase, because you cannot escape this sad reality that simply the alcohol use has increased. So I would favor that rather than waist circumference because that's a crude measure of how bad the liver disease will be in the next decade. I don't know if anybody's doing such work, but that would be an interesting concept. Are you aware of anybody doing such work? Alina, that sounds exactly right. The, the two have risen, clearly the two have risen in most Western countries in lockstep in the last couple of years and to treat them separately probably is not well advised going forward. If, if you look at it from the regulatory uh, standpoint, the cutoffs are important. But if you look at it from the public health policy, I mean, there's a linear correlation, I would think, that between the use of alcohol and, and even beyond the NAFLD uh, thresholds, obviously. Uh, and I'm worried as a clinician. Yeah, I've seen you know the data from the US show increasing um, alcohol and inject our opioid abuse during a pandemic. Those data are just sort of coming out now. We're kind of waiting for what the post-pandemic is going to look like in terms of alcohol abuse. I haven't seen the evidence that 
that, you know, it's declined since the pandemic's ended. We'll see what comes out of those data. You know, in terms of the waste circumference, I think your important big point is that, you know, the sampling variability, the measurement error. I guess it's the link between what I've seen is that, you know, the link between visceral fat or abdominal fat and metabolic syndrome versus the way the fat is distributed on the body um, can have an impact on disease. So how would you measure that? If we think waist circumference is spotty because of the variability where people are actually measuring it, what would be a better way to measure that if you chose to do that? I mean, there are technologies that, you know, look at how the fat is distributed on the body. As far as I know, a lot of that equipment is fairly expensive um, and may not be completely accessible. But but there are technologies that can kind of look at body fat percentage and how the body fat is distributed on the body. But it's probably not something that you would find at the general family doctor office. So I want to try to pull this back to what I used to do as a living, which is forecasting. And in the context of drug development, which is one of the places we started, if I try to pull together what I'm hearing from you, a couple hypotheses come out. One is, and I think Alina made this point, if you're treating later in life and you're treating F2 is not likely to be a reason, a cause of mortality, that if the patient who also has F2 fibrosis has a whole bunch of other metabolic factors going on, then you might think about all that as part of the same issue. But even then, one of the things we talk about on this podcast from time to time is the importance of reversing fibrosis versus simply uh, stabilizing progression of fibrosis. So one of the things I would think is that for an older patient that is not cirrhotic, if we were going to treat the liver, we would worry less about reversing fibrosis and more about overall metabolic effect and stabilization of fibrosis. Does the A, does that sound right to you in terms of where the data would take you? And B, the rest of you, does that sound right in terms of how, how, how the world seems to work or how physiology seems to work? Chris, do you have data? Or is there data that informs that question? Yeah, that's it's pretty challenging to look at um, stabilization versus disease regression, given the variability in our, you know, diagnostics. But we do feel like lower fibrosis store is associated with lower overall mortality. For an older person, you can make the argument that it's more important to stabilize at that point, and regression may be likely at advanced age. And we would expect overall lower mortality with reduced disease progression. I, yeah, I guess the, the information, again, coming back to the concept of fast versus slow, is how rapidly are things changing for those patients? And that's missing in some of those. We don't have that data. We can't provide that data to Chris yet from the diagnostics or the epidemiological data we have. It's always a question, how far is the car driving towards the wall? You know, when when will it get there? And this might mean you might want to have a measure of uh, necroinflammation or something that hasn't been linked to anything yet because nobody can agree on what it looks like and this histology and so on. But it might be important if you want to have very precise information. Louise Campbell. I think that's correct. And I think one of the difficulties and going back to the stuff at the beginning is how often do we measure? If we measure frequently, we've discussed on the podcast live, if we measure more frequently, people get more motivated. They see the alterations that they make and they make a difference. If we look at the NAFL guidelines in the UK, at the moment, it's three to five years to repeat a fibre scan, for example, for capacity. There are now centres who use 10 kilopascals to get people in to be able to just assess for their capacity. So what we're seeing is the rise of kilopascals or other measurements to try and get to the most severe, but that's increasing all of the time. So stabilising is important, but also getting regular measurements so that we know you can do an awful lot of damage to your liver in four weeks if you suddenly hit fast food. You can also do an awful lot of improvement, but if we don't have the measurements, we cannot tell who are fast and slow progressors. We can't really tell how the burden of disease changes because we're forever using surrogates. So do they all get a fit form more regularly? Are there ways that we can alter the pathways to get some of that data? But I think the biggest thing we lose by not being able to monitor is to motivate that patient to speed up the progress because 
the more people that get that progress, the more people that keep on not changing. We know that only 10% of people who get 10% body weight loss have kept it off at one year. Just making a start there to make it 11%, 12%, 15% and getting that slow attrition. In the numbers that we're talking about, one or 2% difference is a massive change in the outcomes for people's liver health. So we do need to get something that we can monitor more frequently that's cost-effective, that allows us to see what's going on for these people. Because everybody's right. Information is key and data is important. These are really important points. When we look at the model, we know that there's people that don't progress or progress fairly slowly. And we know there's people that progress very quickly. We don't have quite have the data to break all that down in the model. So we actually just have an average progression rate. And when we look at lifestyle intervention or a therapeutic compound, the way we would model that is we'd say that maybe this portion of the population will be diagnosed and screened at F3. And that portion of the population that's screened and diagnosed and receives the treatment will have, say, you know, a certain percentage reduction in the disease progression. But that could vary between individuals. So someone who's a slow progressor may have a different reduction than someone who's progressing quickly. So we really need to better identify those who are fast progressing versus slow progressing. You know, the model is holistic, so it looks at national burden using averages. But for clinicians, it's really important to look at the patients as individuals. Do you have the uh, ability within the model? even at a hypothesized level, to create distributions around that? If a fast progressor is this proportion of the population and goes this quickly, here's the added burden and here's the added value of addressing it. Does those kinds of tools exist? From a modeling perspective, we can create kind of weighted averages. So we could say that this portion of the population is slow progressing versus fast progressing. You know, when these data come, we're going to find that that varies by gender, by age group, by country, by obesity level, and with these other comorbidities are linked to it. So, it, you know, it becomes, it's you know, fast versus slow progressors probably linked to other factors as well. In terms of modeling, I think you have to come up with, you know, weighted average progression rates depending on the distribution of the population. And we already do that in the model. So we assume that people over 40 are progressing at a faster rate than under 40. Uh, we have the data to support that. And we have faster progression among males as compared to females. So it's really getting those uh, more granular data to understand what portion is fast versus slow progressing as a function of age, gender, obesity level, which are going to vary between countries. So, Lainey, you sat up, which led me to think you had a thought. The thought I, I had was about this concept of fast progressors or slow progressors. I think we talk about this a lot, but I, I do wonder in the back of my mind if those fast progressors, we call them because we happen to catch them in a stage of fibrosis towards the end after having been in that stage of fibrosis for several years, and then we, we caught them moving to a different stage. In, in my clinical practice, I don't see a lot of fast progressors. So as a big picture, in terms of modeling for drug development or application of approved drugs in the population, I think this is probably low priority because one, it, I think it's a biased term. We don't have the population that we follow on a serial basis with any sort of fibrosis estimation to know and identify what characteristics those people have if truly they exist. When the time comes to apply these concepts into a population, the slow progressors are going to be the majority. And that's where I think the mo most of the thinking should happen. Instead of trying to stratify and tease out. There may be some, but there may be actually just on a trajectory and we catch them late. That's what I was thinking. Well, I think I agree. Well, obviously, I don't have data to prove otherwise. We've done some analysis looking at the Optum electronic healthcare records and identifying patients with cirrhosis, then looking back for the first coding of liver disease, which is very artificial, of course, too, but you're going to identify two big groups, one that are identified very late, and maybe it's on fast progressors, but late identifiers or 
something like this. And uh, you're going to have some that have coded liver disease for a long time, and then it takes seven to 15 years to reach an endpoint. And it's also arbitrary because people are doing a lot of things in between. They might go to see Louise, be scanned, change their whole life, exercise, and then something happens and they regain weight. So it's not... It's not a straight path, I agree. So that's interesting, right? Because that says two things. First first of all, if I do the economics of it, the fast progressors matter. If there is such a thing, Alina, the fast progressors matter because on a spend per capita basis and value of spend per capita, you're spending more money in late disease than early disease. You spend more money in fast progression than you do in slow progression. And as a result, from a purely commercial sense, whether you're talking about the pharma companies, the diagnostics companies, or most of the point health insurers, whoever pays for it, private or public, fast progressors are the place you're likely to get the greatest bang for your buck if you can figure out who they are and whether they exist. Going back to Louise's comment, to figure out whether they exist, you need to track faster than we're tracking right now. And now back to Roger. This conversation is sponsored by Resoundant, a Mayo Clinic company and the developers of MRLSography. MRE is widely available with over 2,000 locations worldwide and can be done as a low-cost rapid exam in just five minutes. Together with MRI-PDFF, this quantitative exam is called an hepatogram, a powerful non-invasive alternative to liver biopsy in many cases. For more information, visit www.resoundant.com on the web. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week for a stimulating discussion on advances and implications of single-cell genomics with Professor Scott Friedman and Neil Henderson. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.